Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to worship with you today. Today, we are continuing our topic of character change, and we've been using this... This analogy of water, which is heated, and it reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it then begins to boil. So we're talking about life at the boiling point, where God, in a way, through disciplines, through habits that we adopt into our life, raises our spiritual temperature, so to speak, and then we start to see change in our life. And sometimes that change is immediate. You can have an event, you can have a conversation with a person, and you're changed, but sometimes change takes time. And one of the phrases that we've said over... uh, or at least I've said it over and again, is no fault of yours, really, uh, is that God works in our working. That it's not simply enough to just close your eyes, grit your teeth, and just pray really hard, God, change me, but that God works in our working, that as we try, as we pray, as we show hospitality, as we adopt some simple habits that we can become generous or grateful people. And today, we're talking about the spiritual discipline of Scripture intake, taking it in. So that could be listening to it, which is what you're doing now, which is what you do with your podcast. Sometimes it's your own personal reading of the Scripture or your own personal study. And I think that it's beneficial to do all three. But if you're a person who wants to develop your relationship with God and to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, then you ought to take in Scripture. And reading Scripture is a means to that end. And oftentimes, in our efforts to emphasize our dependence upon God, which we are absolutely dependent upon Him, we often steer clear of words like ought, or should, or act, or choose. And we, we tend to focus on our actions or our words on something like being driven out of heartfelt love and, and tr- like true desire. I get that. But I really don't think that that precludes us from saying ought. And I understand that the relationship between ought and love and which one causes the other is complex. So you can do it, and it causes you to love, or you do it because you love. And I think that both of those are okay. Well, here. All right. So sometimes love makes ought easy, right? Sometimes love makes ought easy. But sometimes you love, and you just aren't motivated to do the ought, whatever that ought is, right? So sometimes you love, but you aren't motivated. Maybe you are tired. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're fearful. And so even though you ought to do something, because of all of those complex situations, you just don't do it, although you love. And sometimes you do the oughts just to check things off a list or to appear to be something that you are not, something like a social performance. So you do the ought regardless of whether or not you love. And sometimes you do the ought because you genuinely love, you genuinely desire but you don't have a certain kind of sentimental feeling that we often associate with love. And sometimes, even though you love, the ought is not easy, right? Sometimes love makes the ought very easy, and sometimes love just, even when you love, the ought is difficult. And I think that most of us would pray, or we would desire to do all these oughts, like I said, you ought to read scripture, 
think that most of us would pray that, yeah, I really do want to read Scripture out of a deep desire because I want to know more about Jesus. I want to understand the gospel, the love of God, etc. Realizing that even as we want to do that, sometimes we're just going to have an emotional flatline. And so we do the oughts, even through the flat line, and that other times when we read, we're going to have this experience, and it means a lot to us. And so sometimes the ought is easy, and sometimes it's not, for a variety of reasons. But personal experiences say that when I'm tired, when I'm distracted, when I'm anxious, when I'm disengaged, when I'm moving, that the mere process of me quieting myself, of opening up the book of books and saying, God, I need your help. Help me receive it. When I do the ought, that that process is formative. That it might not change me then and there in some drastic way where you feel like you got a new pastor, right? Just like in seven days, Jason's a completely different person. But that process of quieting and reading scripture changes me over time. It changes you. Sometimes the ought is very easy. Perhaps you cannot wait to read more about the patriarchs in Genesis or redemption from Egypt or maybe your imagination is fueled by the poetry you read in the book of Psalms or your desire for justice and equity is stoked and sharpened by the prophets or you find yourself face to face with the Christ in the Gospels and so reading the Bible is easy in those cases, right? Yeah, sometimes the ought is easy. But at other times, if I can confess, I really don't like the ought. I really don't like the ought. I don't know very many of us who like to be told what we should do, even though we know that it's good for us. And for me personally, sometimes the, the Bible feels heavy. Sometimes the, the front cover feels like the door to the vault of a bank. I know that there's a treasure in there. Just today, I don't think I can crack the code. I just don't feel up to it. But this is what I've learned. The ought is there out of grace. Ought is not for earning. Ought is there out of grace. Because it calls you out of your temporary condition and says, engage with God. Awe is not for earning. Awe is an invitation. Awe is an invitation to have your heart filled with the heart of God, to have your life filled to overflowing with the life of God. Awe, as complicated and as hard as this seems, Ought is love's invitation. Ought. And so today I want to look at a very small sliver of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses. I felt like I should trim it down a little bit. And if you've ever seen it, it is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, so on and so forth. 176 verses, and all but three of these 176 verses talks about Scripture, or talks about the Word of God, and they will use words like commandment, precept, statute, promise, rule, testimony, commandment, in all but three of these verses. So it's a chapter of Scripture that talks about the merits of Scripture. And my prayer this week is that I've, as I've thought about this, is, is that God would move us through ought. 
that the ought wouldn't stiff arm you, but that you would see that when we're commanded or told you need to engage with God through the scriptures, that that's actually an invitation to know and to love God more than you do right now. And so, preacher's coincidence, I guess, there's three points. Um, And the first one, we're just going to simply look at the psalmist, we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to consider ourselves. Alright, so we're going to look at the psalmist. And two points with the psalmist, and it's this, learning and loving. He first asked for wisdom, He, he asked for learning, and that led to love. Okay? So as he's learning, as he follows the art, as he does the art, as he learns, his capacity, his knowledge of the things of God increases. And as that understanding increases, so does his capacity to know, to understand, and to love God. But also, the art comes in when you love. If you're a person who says you love God, then that should stoke a desire to learn. So it's this cycle of learning and loving and loving and learning. And then we're going to look at the good news that we find in Jesus Christ. So the psalmist says that he needs to learn. Five times in Psalm 119, the writer says, Give me. Give me. Give me understanding. I don't come with an inherent ability to connect all the dots and to get it right. I have blind spots that I need you to reveal. I need outside input. Like a giver giving a gift. God, when I come and I approach you through the scriptures, I need that gift from you. Ten times in this one psalm he says, teach me. Teach me. Not as a demand, but as a heartfelt request. Teach me. Verse 29, which is not included in the bulletin, he says this. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Graciously teach me your law. The writer understands that deep within his own heart there are false ways that would steal him away from God. And the psalmist says, I need you to intervene. I need you to correct me. To change me from deep within. He says, graciously teach me. I don't come with the ability to understand it myself. I need you graciously. Oftentimes we have this presumption that in the Old Testament everything was merit-based, obedience-driven, that New Testament is Christianity and Old Testament is altianity, right? Just ought. It's just a bunch of oughts. It's just a bunch of rules that you, you do and if you don't, you know, and you just do these and if you don't do the checklist then bad things happen. But grace flows like a river from God and we see this all throughout the Old Testament and us, people like you and I, going to the temple, hearing the scripture read, that that, that is a gracious gift given to us and we need to act uh, to, to act on it. So he has this desire to learn, and so he tells God, I, here I am, I want you to teach me these things, and then he loves. Verse 156 here says, Great is your mercy, O Lord, give me life according to your rules. And then 159 says this, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. See, the scriptures are not a bunch of writings about your level of obedience. Autianity. They're not a level that if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, then you power up like a video game. Right? So you do this, and you do this, and you do this really hard level, and then you get, you know, you get to power up into heaven. That's, that's not what the scripture 
is the scriptures are about the mercy and love of God. Mercy. Now, when we think of mercy, we think of mercy as I've been found guilty, or actually I am guilty, and the judge lets me off the hook. That's what we think of mercy. But that's actually not what the psalmist is talking about here. Great is your mercy, O Lord, in verse 156. Give me life according to your rules. Hebrew has a root word system that's very fascinating. Preponderance of Hebrew words, they have roots, and it's made up of three consonants. And the three consonants convey some kind of idea. And then you add vowels, an article, prefix, suffix, and you create a word family from this one idea. So different words convey different components of this idea. And in my study, I saw this, that mercy and womb are from the same root. RCM, Resh, Chet, Mem. And the root conveys this idea of fiercely dedicated familial love. So you add the Hebrew equivalent of the letter A in between those consonants and you get mercy. You replace the A with an E and you get womb. And it makes sense that if you share a womb, if you are from the same family, you are going to have tender affections for the other person, right? It, just, it, makes, it makes sense. Or you come from the same grandmother or great-grandmother. It just makes sense that if you quote-unquote share a womb, I'm not saying if you're a twin, but if you, if you come through the same line of people that you're going to have compassion and mercy toward them. So, a component of Hebrew poetry, which this psalm is, something called parallelism where you see that it's stacked. It's not like the New Testament and other parts of the Old Testament where it's just a sentence, but it's always stacked. So in Hebrew, there's this idea, and then it's repeated right under it. So if you look at 156, Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. He's giving a head nod to this idea of mercy of God and the womb of a mother giving life to a child. Give me life, like a mother gives life to her child in the womb. Mercy and womb. What does it mean to be in the womb? One person I read said this, <clears throat> The mother is the world of the child. This is a man's thoughts about God, by the way, that we just read here. And listen to what this female scholar says. The mother is the world of the child. The child knows no existence outside of the mother. The womb is the ground of the child's being, and from it, life flows. The mother cannot help but sustain the child, and the child cannot help but remain in the womb. The child is surrounded, utterly dependent, and in a constant state of transformation. At no point is the child not 100% dependent on the care and thought of the mother. Without the mother, the child would not have life. Your mercy is great. Give me life. This is what the psalmist says about his life with God. Your mercy is great, O Lord. Give me life. God, be my mother. 
When's the last time you've prayed that? God, be my mother. Grow me. Sustain me. Transform who I am by the sustenance of your life. God, you are the womb in which I live. Move and have my being. And as the psalmist interacts with Scripture, he brings these thoughts to God. And because he's learning about God, his capacity to love God increases. So he prays, give me life. To say God is merciful is far more than saying that he just let you off the hook. It's to say that God's mercy is your life. That the life that you have and the ability that you have to know God and to grow. Let's say that you want to be here, but you feel like you're here. But even that much is a mercy. It is a life-giving miracle. The revelation that has come to you, it's beautiful. Unearned, committed, surrounding you kind of love. Mercy and love. 159, it says, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love is every seminarian's favorite Hebrew word. It sounds like a Hebrew word, that word chesed, right? It sounds like you have a cold. It does sound like a true Hebrew word. And it's translated loving kindness, steadfast love. So he says in this psalm, your mercy and your love, your steadfast love. As he learns, he hears God's mercy and he notices God's love toward him. Hesed sums up the scenario where God says, listen, I love you. You belong to me. I belong to you. And I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. All of that is truncated into one word called hesed. I will be your God. And I will give you life and so much more. It's like God just notices you and just tags you with his love. And says, no matter what... I have set my love upon you. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Nine times in this one chapter, he says, give me life. And so, when you read Psalm 119, my experience has been that I can focus on kind of my negative assumptions of what these words like rules and statutes and commands are. But the psalmist is not saying... Give me rules. He's saying, give me life. Just point out something for me to do, God, and I'll do it. I just want to make you happy, so, so just give me a, a bunch of stuff to do, and I'll, I'll just do it, and then you'll know that I love you. No, he's saying, give me a way of life that is filled your life. I don't want a code of ethics. I don't want a culturally conditioned religion. I want life. And 
it's a life that only you can give God. It's a life that cannot be found by just merely checking things off a list. It's a life that you give. I need my life informed by your life, God, the logic of your love. There's something in me, the psalmist noticed, that kills, that steals, that takes him away from God, and it can't be fixed by mere obedience, that it's a gift that comes from God, and that it is that that is fed and nurtured in us by God, that I'm able to grow, that you're able to grow like a child inside of its mother. So he learned, and so his learning led to love. And let's talk about Jesus, well, ourselves for a second. Maybe you read this, and you confess that there's quite a difference between the psalmist and yourself. Like, I don't, I don't really know if I love God like that. Well, yeah, <clears throat> I get it. Um, sometimes you read Scripture and you feel shamed, right? <laughs> feel embarrassed or whatever. You know, really, there's only been one person who could read this psalm without embarrassment or conviction, without a sense of duplicity, and that person is Jesus Christ. He did hide the word of God in his heart that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119.11. Verse 97, how I love your law, I meditate on it all day long. That was Jesus. He hid it in his heart. He loved God, the Father, with this abundant, free-hearted love. And he took his words. He hid it in his heart. He meditated. He meditated on it. He lived into the love that he received from God. Psalm 119. Show me the way. Show me the way. Give me life. One day Jesus is talking with his followers and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. Look at verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And then one day this man named Jesus comes around and says, I am the truth. If the sum of Scripture is truth, then Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way. The psalmist says, give me a way. Give me life. The sum of your words are truth. And then Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Not, you come to me and I'll give you a bunch of rules to live by. Although Jesus did have an ethic that he taught. That I will give you life from God. That I am the life. That your relationship with me will give you life. Abundantly so. Deep within you. And that this life that God gives you is like a river of blessing that will pour into you. And then pour out. Jesus says this. That if a person believes in me, that person will have in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Much like a child in the womb who has all their life supplied by the mother, so God will feed you deep within. Well, did the psalmist know all this about Jesus? Not like you and I do. But Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, it says that he was talking to his disciples, and it said that he opened up to them the law and the prophets, and he says, they were talking about me. He fulfills the law and the prophets and he takes the curse for those who break it. And all of the scriptures are not an ever-increasing dialogue about what you must do to earn God's love. Or how to earn your own righteousness by checking off Red Bible daily. 
The Scriptures are about the great love and mercy of God that is given to us, done for us, through Jesus Christ. It's not a rule book. It's a book of mercy. The Bible is a book of mercy. Not that God just let us off the hook if we say a certain prayer, but that God keeps covenant with us like a mother, always giving us life out of himself at great cost to himself, specifically that we see in Jesus Christ's death. The sum of your word is truth. And the Word, the incarnate Jesus Christ, the Word took on flesh. And He dwelt among us so that we would know the mercy and love of God. Jesus is the Word. Think about this. Jesus is God's talk to you. Okay? Jesus is God's talk to you. Jesus is God's conversation with you. And what do you think God wants to say to you? Listen, that's, that is the question that we're trying to answer. What does God think about me? Well, this is not all that can be said. I don't want to keep you here all day, but Jesus, at one point in the Gospel, is traveling to Jerusalem, and He looks at it on the hillside, and He sees Jerusalem there, and He says, Rebellious people, I would love to gather you like a mother. Like a mother hen who takes her brood under her wings to her heart. That is what God says. I am the womb in which you live and I would love to gather you to me. That is why ought is an invitation. That is why reading the scripture is an invitation. So how do we put ourselves in a place to see, appreciate, and love. Well, first off, we have to understand that it is a gift. In my heart, there is this desire to, that did not belong to me. Those are the words that we sang just a few minutes ago. That it really is a gift. And so the psalmist is not just doing this fly-by-night, just kind of flat pattern, habitual prayer of, I need you. He realizes that it is a gift given. So I just think that it's simply you, wherever you are, just quieting yourself. When I say quiet, I mean your voice. That person that brushes teeth with you, that person is crazy, right? So uh, it's even with that voice. You open up the scripture and you say, here I am, God. Teach me. I need you. It's a gift, right? So you ask for it. It's a gift. Secondly, listen. You listen. Verse 147, not, not printed here, says this. I rise before the dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. And you're like, alright, here it comes. Here comes the legalism. Jason is going to say that you have to read your Bible and you have to do it before sunrise. Right? Okay. How about, how about no? Okay? For, for some of you, morning just doesn't work. Right? Maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe a better time for you is in the middle of your day, on your lunch break. Or some kind of break. Or at the end of work. Or at the end of the day. Or 
a sliver of time after you get home in the evening. Maybe that's just the next simple step that you take. The simple step of reading. Of just reading. Maybe it's morning for you. Maybe it's not. I meditate on your promises. You know, so we talked about this a few weeks ago with, on the topic of, of prayer. Um, meditation. Here, all right, you're driving. Or just minding your own business, right? You're just driving and you're commuting to or from work or an errand. And you start thinking of something. All right, so the other day uh, with conversation Barbara and I and my wife were having, I started to think about one of our favorite restaurants that, we've, that we went to in Orange County. And I started to meditate on it. Just started thinking about it. I was like, oh, I really want like a really greasy hamburger right now, right? I ought not to eat that, but I did. When a thought becomes more than mental, you've meditated. Okay? Someone wrongs you, so you think about that person or that instance of hurt, and you feel that warming sensation called anger. You've meditated. It's become more than mental. When we're talking about engaging with Scripture, or thoughts about God, or however you want to phrase that, we're talking about getting it off the page and kind of into your head, and then thinking about it. Earlier this year, I spent two months in Psalm chapter 16. Two months. And do you know what? It's a shame I stopped. Every time I read Psalm 16, something new came out. But if you just forgo the, the quantity of chapters and verses and just settle, like settle down, take your time, and think, and pray, and ask, it'll be very beneficial for you. Look, life tends to, to not get less busy. Right? So find the next simple step and do that. And as you learn, it's kind of putting coals on the fire. And, and knowing and learning and doing the ought kind of can stoke the fire and cause your love to grow. And then, as you love, your desire to learn will grow. But all of that, tracing the river of blessing, is a gift from God. So friends, the invitation for you is an invitation that probably could not have been given to 90% of the world two, three hundred years ago. And it's to read the Holy Scriptures. 40% of American households have more televisions than people that live in that house. Okay? How many Bibles do you have? 